When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, to another exciting edition of Audio Judo. I'm Matthew, and I'm here with Kyle. And we are going to talk about Elvis Costello's 1989 release, Spike. So, I could have picked any number of Elvis Costello records. Lots of amazing uh, choices. From My Aim is True, which is debut release, to Armed Forces, to Mighty Like a Rose, or even what I consider to be his best all-around record, Kingdom of America. Oh, that's a pretty good one. But I want to do this one because even though this has his highest charting single. Um, Veronica. Yep. I feel it's one of his more underappreciated, maybe misunderstood records. Veronica was actually the only song on this whole album that I had heard before. And that, see, and that uh, goes to my point. Yeah. A little background on Elvis Costello. He was born, as uh, we had talked about previously, uh, Declan, Declan Patrick McManus. Right. Uh, and he came uh, over. Uh, <laughs> he came over on the first wave of punk uh, circa 1976-1977. Yeah, like the proto-punk era. Right. Yeah, his weird kind of looking Buddy Holly glasses and stuff. Uh, you know, he was had an adopted stage name of, of Mr. Presley. And it kind of <laughs> didn't fit the mold. And you weren't sure what you were going to what you were going to get. And he comes out of here. <clears throat> he comes out and he has this super acerbic tongue. And it's like thesaurus-like writing style, lyrically. And he was angry, but versatile. And through the years, you know, he crossed many different genres. He played in punk. He released a mm-hmm. country record. Yes. Released a that was uh, almost, blue. almost Blue. Yep. Released a classical record, an opera record. Oh, I didn't know about jazz. that Jazz. Uh, Il Sogno is his opera record. Oh. Uh, and a jazz record. And we'll get this out of the way now, right at the top. He is an absolute Rolling Stone darling (laughs) they've loved him from the get-go from the very beginning so much so that even when you make a dud like the juliet letters with the brodsky quartet all was forgiven oh they still forgive him for that and reading a a review about the uh, juliet letters it's even referred to as the critically acclaimed juliet letters and i bought that cassette tape (laughs) <laughs> and regretted it on day one because it was just not good. Hmm. But but apparently Rolling Stone loved it, but whatever. I mean, it is what it is. So I, I do have a quick question. Yeah, go ahead. So I noticed that uh, this is actually kind of a long album. It's uh, a little bit hour and five, hour and six minutes, I believe. Yeah, I touch on that. Was this his first album that was designed to be on CD instead of vinyl? Or I guess I should say a CD at the exclusion of vinyl. I would say. Because it's not possible to squeeze it onto vinyl at that length unless it's a multi-release. I'd say probably yes and no. 
because uh, my feeling is he would have released it as a double LP okay. regardless. And I will get to that in a second about what the reasoning was behind. Um, uh, Elvis had just finished recording a record called Blood and Chocolate. Or he just finished the Blood and Chocolate tour, mm -hmm. recorded a record. And he had been recording for many years before that with his backup band, The Attractions. Elvis Costello and The Attractions. Yeah. That's who they were for several years. And uh, at this particular moment in time, uh, Blood and Chocolate, uh, they hated each other. Like, really oh. disliked each other in a in a big way. Just did not see eye to eye. It had soured uh, during the King of America sessions. The bass player and him really were at odds almost constantly. Giving each other the old uh, two-finger. The, uh, the old one. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it had gotten worse during the recording of Blood and Chocolate. So, and... After this, they wouldn't make another record together for about eight years. Oh, wow. So they all kind of went their separate ways. Pete Thomas, who was the drummer, kind of stayed with Elvis to some degree. But most of them, uh, Steve Neve and uh, the other Thomas, Bruce Thomas, went their separate ways. Elvis's contract with Columbia Records uh, was ending, and he was ready to move on. So he had signed a record deal with Warner Brothers, mm -hmm. right? So as the story goes, as the quote goes... Uh, Elvis said that he was given uh, the budget of a small independent movie to Ooh. record his first record. So very significant yeah. budget. And he had sketched out five albums uh. worth of material. So he, he already had kind of five records worth of material. Jeez. So he decided to record them all <laughs> at the same time. Because why not? Which is what then becomes Spike. So he he booked studio time at four different studios. Uh, one in Hollywood, one in New Orleans, one in London, one in Dublin. Because, again, why not? Right. And at each studio, he booked a different set of musicians. So each session would have a very unique flavor. Uh, he would end up taking double writing credit instead of the usual triple. Ooh. He used to take triple writing credit. So Elvis Costello, Declan McManus, and post-1982, Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> because that's where that name comes from. And he, uh, so he had created this Napoleon Dynamite character early on in 82, but then it kind of, it really came to life during the Blood and Chocolate Tour, which I, I believe I talked to you uh, about before. It was called the Songbook Tour. Okay. So he had this giant wheel made. Oh, yeah. That had all, would... all kinds of songs on it, and he would invite people from the audience to come up and spin the wheel, and whatever song it landed on, that's what they played. That's awesome. And he was the MC. So Napoleon Dynamite was the MC of the Blood and Chocolate Tour. So that's huh. so he would take triple writing credit. For this one, he took double. So Declan McManus and Elvis Costello. So I, I'm curious to know, is that like a financial decision? Does he get paid like three times no. if he takes triple? No, or I is don't it think like he's... A, is it just so that no matter what, he can be like... If somebody comes along and they're like, well, Elvis Costello, that's a made up name. So that's out. And he's like, well, Declan McManus is my real name. And then they're like, yeah, well, that's out. And he's like, well, guess what? Napoleon Dynamite, motherfucker. I think I think that's kind of how I think that's more what it is. Okay. He wasn't getting double or triple writing credit for it. I think it's just the way he, he would refer to it. I mean, there were plenty of times in the past 20, 30 years where he was ready to kind of drop the Elvis Costello pseudonym altogether mm -hmm. and just be Declan McManus and and. The label would kind of talk him out of it, saying, this is who you are now. You've established yourself as this. Yeah. This is kind of who you have to it's be. It's become too well known. Right. 
And his father was a big band performer, uh, like a horn yeah, player. Yeah, I remember reading about right? that. Right, so I think that I think a lot of it was ode or an homage to his last name, to his dad. Okay. So I think just wanted to kind of honor that instead of just be this other guy. Hmm, that's cool. Anyway, to me, I've always felt that that Elvis Costello is rock's greatest lyricist. I know a lot of people will swear up and down that it's Bob Dylan, but for my money, I believe Elvis is better. I mean, David Lee Roth. He's did pretty say, good. He did say I that. ain't got nobody. So that's pretty good. But I would agree with you, Elvis Costello. Nobody probably, probably cares better. for me. Nobody. Yeah. Right? I would agree with you, Elvis Costello probably better. He, <laughs> he is good. He's very good. Right. And Bob Dylan, like, I get it. He's a poet. Yes. I I understand that. I can't listen to him. It just drives me nuts. I hate Bob Dylan. Right. So I, I get he's a he's a fantastic man. I hate his music. I get to a point where I would rather read a book of poetry by a Bob Dylan than listen to him sing lyrics. Agreed. And it, it, I think it's just a some sort of psychological block where I'm like, ah, I can't listen to it anymore. I think the the ultimate answer to that is still the song Royal Jelly from uh, the movie Walk Hard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mailboxes drip like lampposts in the Twisted Booth Canal of the Coliseum. <laughs> if you've never heard the it, other day. If you've never heard it, go find it and listen to it. It is... It is the perfect send up of Bob Dylan. <laughs> Again, though, Amer like Amer he is a fantastic artist. Sure. I just, he's unlistenable to me. To me. To both of us, apparently, he is unlistenable. Something else we agree on. Right. Thank God. So, so rest assured, Audio Judo fans, we probably won't review a Bob Dylan record. Sorry. I just don't see that in the cards. Might have to do it when we have a guest on or something. Oh, we got, that's a possibility. <laughs> We're both like, oh, we hate him. And the guest's like, well, now hold on a minute. Now hold on. I mean, let me break this down for you. Please don't. Anyway. Our guest today is Robert Dylan. What? It's just Bob Dylan. And Bob wig Zimmerman. And mask. I think that's his real name. Oh, yeah. Robert Zimmerman. Sorry. Something it threw us like off that. track here. So you oh. were continuing. So he had this massive output. So he releases 11 records in nine years, Ooh. right? Lyrically dense records. And here comes Spike, right? It's totally different sound than most people are familiar with right off the bat. Yes. Big, thick bass drum, synths, very unorthodox sound for him, right? Yes. And speaking of weird sounds, we talk for a second, if you've read the liner notes, talk for a second about Michael Blair. Michael Blair. He was part of the Hollywood recording sessions. Okay. And he is credited with playing the following. Oh, this is going to be good. Glockenspiel, marimba, tambourine, xylophone, bells, timpani, vibraphone, Chinese drums. I don't know what that is. Oldsmobile hubcap, uh. parade drum, anvil, whiplash, crash box, temple bells, snare drum, magic table, metal pipe, <laughs> and a Martian dog bark. This is what... Wow. One person is credited for in playing on the record. So Pontiac hubcap. Oldsmobile. Oldsmobile hubcap. Sorry, wrong car. It's okay. It's uh, uh, both General Motors. Yeah. No At least deal. I was in the right field. Yeah, the right, the right family. So he comes out every bit as angry as usual on this album opener. This town seemed to be lashing out a little. Little quote from there. You're nobody till everybody in this town thinks you're a bastard. Yeah. Right? Just so straight ahead, he's not pulling any punches. Lots of speculation about who he may be talking about there or what he's talking about. So I got to go over something if we're going to start 
start into the uh, Go ahead. track by track here. Yeah, please do. I actually didn't like this album very much. Really? Yeah. I like older Elvis Costello, the the proto-punk and kind of the punk era Elvis Costello. That's fair. And this was just not, I've listened to it six or eight times in the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And it was one I had, I'd heard Veronica before, but nothing else off this album. Okay. Didn't resonate with me. I, I you know, musically it's very good. I'm sure it's to a lot of people's taste. Didn't resonate with me. Okay. But this town actually, I wrote down, it sounds like Dear Commissar by Falco. Wow. I don't know why, but it just, the way that, I think it's the opening. It just immediately, because the first time I heard it, I was like, wait a minute, did I, oh no, this is right. Wow, I don't, I don't hear that at all. Hmm. But that's okay. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting uh, point of view. So, and we've spoke about before, I believe a lot of it has to do with where I was. Yes. And that particular moment in time. So let's go back in time a bit. Record was released in 1989. I did not have it in 1989. I bought that record in 1990. So I had just graduated high school and I was starting my first adult job. So all the touristy stuff that I had done previously was over. I was starting like a like a real person job. Well, it wasn't nine to five. It was a it was four thirty to one in the morning. But it was, you know, it was a real job. I was getting paid. Hold on to your hats, folks. 1990. I was getting paid six fifty five an hour. Whoa! And I was, I was styling. And I was <laughs> feeling good, but it was also at a facility that was located twenty five minutes away from my house. Hmm. I knew this was going to be. I was going to be able to listen to music more readily in the car. Yeah, because you basically had a half an hour every day in one direction. Yeah. So back and forth, oh, so we you have had an, hour. an hour every day. So. Harmony House, you know, walking around. I'm familiar with Elvis Costello. I see this weird album cover of Elvis Costello's face painted black and white, bursting through this velvet curtain. It says the beloved entertainer underneath. And I'm like, okay, this is this is this will be a good start. And it positioned itself in such a way that I was able to listen to almost the entire thing on the way there and back. So half on the way there. So the first side of the cassette on the way there, most of the rest of most of the second side on the way home because there wasn't any traffic at one in the morning. So I was able to kind of fly home. Yeah, that makes sense. So it has a very like specific spot. And that that's kind of what I was alluding to at the beginning. Like there are Elvis Costello records that I like more than this record. Mm -hmm. But I also think that there's considerable value on this record that, that does go unappreciated uh, besides Veronica. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's kind of what we're going to break down a little bit. So okay. you didn't like the first song, right? And second song is... Oh, and again, not that I necessarily did not like this album. There yeah. is, like you said, there there is a lot of musical appeal here. It just, it did not appeal to me. No, that's fair. So again, that's fantastic fair. musicians, fantastic lyrics, just didn't appeal to me. So, And that makes sense. Because I don't, I don't want it to sound like I'm like, this is a crap album, because it's a very decent album. It just didn't appeal to me. All right. Although... Deep Dark Truthful Mirror is one of the best songs on here, I believe. I would agree with that, actually. And that the melody itself is really rich. The lyrics are completely nonsensical. Uh, a friend of mine, Chris, Chris, if you're listening, he and I used to talk about this song because it, it just felt like it was a kind of like a drunken escapade. It was like just a just a weird, not drunken nonsense mm-hmm. kind of song, especially at the end, until you start to break down a little bit. Really what he's talking about is a drunk 
in a relationship and someone's challenging the drunk to look in the mirror and see the kind of person they've become, okay. which is never how I heard it until I actually sat down and read the lyrics outside of the song itself. Oh. So the best description I've ever heard of that song is, uh, goes like this. So when you break it down, this whole song is like having the shakes in the drunk tank, waiting for someone to show up and claim you and realizing the only one who would have bothered to claim you has just given up on you. Hmm. And when you go back and read the lyrics after that, I'm like, crap, there's a lot more layering there than I would even realize. Hmm. And I think, I think it's an excellent song. I've always liked that particular song. I will say that one and uh, Satellite were the two that stood out to me on this really? album. Yeah. Those two I, I, I actually thought were, were pretty good songs. Those were a little bit more appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know why, though. Like, I don't know. It was just, it was weird. Those two. Sound like a clangy. Yeah. It's a, it's a clangy song. Like, very percussive. There's a lot of stuff going on. And and granted, he threw everything, including the kitchen sink, <laughs> at this record. He was. Oldsmobile hubcap. Playing every, yeah. <laughs> he had this huge budget and he's like, why, why the hell not? I'll, I'll get. Alan Toussaint, I'll get all these, the Dirty uh, dirty Dozen brass band. He had all these, pl- Chrissy Hind plays on it from The oh. Pretenders. She actually sings backup on on Satellite. Her voice okay. is in there, They're like the high-pitched harmony that is Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders. Paul McCartney. Yeah, he co-wrote a couple of these, right? right? He, yep, he plays. Uh, Veronica and. Pads, Paws, and Claws is yeah. the other one that he wrote. Um, so all these, Mitchell Froom and all these Huge players. T-Bone Burnett produced it. I mean, he's got a lot of faces on it. Yeah. And it's just a, a, such a richly uh, layered record, like Veronica. So so as far as I know, Veronica is the only Alzheimer's song, to my knowledge. Yeah, it's about his grandma, correct? Yeah, who had Alzheimer's. I mean, it's a, and it's a wonderful little short little pop song. Yeah. I was going to say, it actually kind of felt out of place on this album to me. Mm-hmm. Like, cause it's very poppy and very upbeat and I can see why it was the hit on this album because it's, it has a lot like very mass appeal to it. It's very, uh, it's something that you could put on the radio and people would listen to it without having to think about it. Mm-hmm. And what, what happened with this record is it's so bizarre. I think if he had kind of broken it down into like quadrants mm-hmm. and put them in order that way. I think it probably may have been more successful, but because he kind of scattershot the whole thing and recorded in four different studios and then it's all, you, you kind of have to listen to it to figure out which one was recorded where. Yeah. And you have, so you have one that's got thick bass drum and synth and harmonium and all these different instruments. And then the next song has a fife and a lute and you're, <laughs> you're kind of all over the map instead of, kind of just progressing down the line. I think he may have suffered from that. Uh, Veronica, you know, like you said, he wrote with Paul McCartney and 1987 is kind of where that relationship started Mm -hmm. with him. And they ended up, he started, he wrote a bunch of songs with Paul McCartney for Flowers in the Dirt, which was Paul McCartney's kind of bigger solo record since the early 80s. Okay. He had that gap six, seven years where he didn't really have anything popular and Flowers in the Dirt came out and they ended up writing for like five or six years together. Uh, he had uh, songs on 
uh, Mighty Like a Rose and a couple other records too. Okay. So, hmm. and you have these, you know, these songs in a row, to me, these really great songs in a row. So God's Comic is was always one of my favorite songs to listen to. Mm. It's an interesting lyrical song about a stand-up comedian priest, which, you know, I don't know how many of those there are. Yeah. Well, it's it's about a stand-up comedian priest who's dead. Who's dead. Right? Yeah. It's after he died. Right. He's in heaven kind of talking it out with God. like, And God's like telling him, I, I like this bit of your act, not so much this. What was the deal with airplane food? <laughs> And God was just like, I don't know. I, I, I don't. I, I, I can't answer all the questions. I had nothing to do with the airplane. That's, what are you that's talking not about? in the song. If you've never heard it, I'm sorry. <laughs> Apologies to Jerry Seinfeld. <clears throat> I keep going back to this. Der Kommersar. Der Kommersar. I'm, like, I'm like hung up on this. I don't know. It's just the opening of this town. Just the second I heard it, I was like, Der Kommersar. I don't know why. It's weird. I, I'm going to do some more investigating. Well, now I have to. Listen to uh, side have to by listen side. to it and check out what you're talking about. And then uh, Stalin Malone, which is this big band number, and there are lyrics for that song, but he did not sing yeah, them. They didn't sing them, right? Yep. They're actually in the uh, the liner notes of of that CD. All the lyrics. Oh, I remember like looking at it, going, "Why does why does it lyrics? have lyrics? It doesn't make any sense." <laughs> so, and then you get to uh, tramp the dirt down, which maybe. One of the most overtly political songs right. of the 1980s. The line of the song, when England was the whore of the world, Margaret was her madam. Like, <laughs> basically taking Margaret Thatcher to task via song. Yeah, for all and, the shit that she was doing. Right, he could not stand her. Well, didn't he say that he he would outlive her and then tamp the dirt down on her grave? That's the whole point of the song. And when she passed away, that song shot up the iTunes chart. Yeah, that's because amazing. People were like, "Oh, what's this? What's this? What's this?" And yeah, he was—he could not stand her, and he was way more political, I think, than people believe. With um, Oliver's army, mm-hmm. he's got—he does have a history of of that. What are you having your notes there, Kyle? I know you got more than that. My notes are kind of bare. No. So a lot of these are just reminders of what the song was about. So like on God's Army, I, I did write down that I was like, it's a, it's what happens after a comic dies, but it's a really slow song. Yeah. And it just, it felt kind of like, it felt like it needed to be, if it's, if you're talking about like a comedian, it felt to me like it needed to be slightly faster paced. As stupid as that sounds. Oh. I feel like it should have been like, it's dirgy. go, go, go. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a song about death. Right? So obviously. It's dirgy. That's why it's slow, but I think it would have been more interesting if it was like faster paced. Um, chewing gum. Yeah. I wrote down that uh, it's definitely a very 80s sound. It does have an 80s sound. That and is uh, so you said they recorded in LA, New Orleans, Dublin, London, and Dublin? Dublin and London. So yeah. which one of those was a pipe factory that apparently they caught in the background of chewing gum? Oh, the all the clinks. It said it right here. I told you. <laughs> right. Where is it? Michael Blair. Michael Blair. Played metal. Was the manager of a metal pipe factory. Pipe. Metal pipe. Okay, metal pipe. It's right here in the liner notes. Clearly. It's, just, it's It was. Uh, That's Hollywood, by the way. Oh, okay. That was in Hollywood. All right. Ocean Way Studios. Ocean Way Studios. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Stalin Malone, I wrote, sounds like it should be something 
from like a detective noir movie right. soundtrack. It's a it's, big band movie. It's it is. A it's band. a very big band sound, and I love it. It was. Uh, it's definitely interesting. And that's part of part of the appeal of this record is how eclectic it is. How there isn't like one particular sound. Yes. And uh, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of quote unquote eighties moments on this record. Not that that's a bad thing. No, but it's just it's very evident. Um, it's the age of overproduction. Yes. And, you know, there's no minimalism here. They're just like, I got every sound possible, and that's what I'm going to use. He really did have every sound possible, because, like, Pads, Paws, and Claws is it's a very unusual, I don't even know how to describe it, but I did write down the line, why is it all covered in fur? <laughs> like, <laughs> is this is this song about a naked lady? Because I think that it is. Most of his songs uh, are about naked ladies. I mean, that would make sense. Most but. of his songs have a double entendre in them somewhere, or uh, an overtly like satellite is about pornography on mm. cable TV. Makes like, sense. That whole thing, and so he he's not. Thanks, Rupert Murdoch. He doesn't he doesn't shy away from that. He never has. He's always kind of been like I'm just going to say it in a creative vocabulary type way. Okay. And so, yeah, the Paz, Paws, and Claws is most definitely about a naked lady. Mm. No? No, I think that it is. I think it is, too. I was going to lean in and say pussy, but... Whoa. Like a cat. Ah, but a cat, yes. Like a pussycat. Ah, pussycat, yes. Yes, yes. What's new, pussycat? Let's see. After that, Baby Plays Around. Baby Plays Around is a great song. It's not bad. He co-wrote with his wife at the time. Okay. Kate O'Reardian, uh, uh, who was from the Pogues, punk, I liked the uh, punk band the Pogues. I liked the uh, like the Spanishy guitar sound in that. It was very nice. It's a nice sound. It, it's a, it's an excellent song for that particular era. Mm-hmm. And I think we get caught up in you know, could I listen to it now? I don't know. I, to further your point that you were making, uh, I haven't listened to this record in a long time. Mm-hmm. I listened to it and I had a tough time getting through it because it, some of it great. Some of it really dated. Yeah. And we get to the problem with my 25 minutes, 25 minute drive, mm-hmm. 25 minute one way, 25 minute the other way. I end up with 50 minutes. Now it was a 65 minute record. So I was not very familiar with the last couple uh. of songs. Because I usually, I never got that far because I would just start over the next day at the very beginning and never get to Coltrane Robberies and Any King Shilling, which is a good song. But again, straining and dated. Any King Shilling sounds very country to me. Like it's got a yes, lot of country influence it. does. It. it does. And he's, you know, he, he has said that one of his biggest influences was George Jones, country performer. Okay. Which now I say okay a lot. When, <laughs> when, Go ahead, when Almost Blue came out, his country record, they actually slapped a sticker on it in the UK that said, hey, uh, be warned, this album contains country and Western music, probably not what you're expecting from Elvis Costello. Didn't it say it was offensive to small-minded offen- idiots yes, or something like exa- that? Yes, that's what it said. That's it, pretty cool. But he was, you know, he was always the, the uh, was past tense is the barrier breaker he he, yeah. he stepped over the line you know famously was shut out of saturday night live for 
third 20 years yeah. because he pulled a he pulled a the doors move. Lauren Michaels told him he can't play radio radio on Saturday Night Live, so he started playing another song, stopped, stopped halfway it. through and said we're going to play this radio. Thing. Right, and played radio radio. So he was invited back for 20 years. Yeah. And then when he was invited back, it was you're invited back to interrupt the Beastie Boys to play radio radio. 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 It's just tongue and cheek. Like apparently we've evolved. Times so far, have changed, right? Damn it. So uh coal train robbery. Yeah. You know what? I wrote down a similar note to earlier. I wrote down uh Sharif don't like it, rob the coal train, rob the coal train. <laughs> Cause uh it so reminds me of Rock the Casbah. Really? I was gonna the say opening, like that just that dun, 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 like it's so it's so so Coltrane train robbery reminds you of the clash. Yeah. And this town reminds you of Falco. Falco. <laughs> I think it's all that eighties influence. It's interesting. It's all yeah. that 80s influence. Oh, it's definitely there. Yeah. It's definitely there. It and I believe like the the next record, he kind of fine-tuned that sound. Mm-hmm. Like I know we're talking about Spike, but Mighty Like a Rose kind of fine-tuned that overproduced sound but still slimmed it trimmed it back a yeah. little bit it wasn't so far afield and i kind of wonder if now knowing that because i was going to ask this question to begin with but now knowing that he had a bunch of money to produce this record and basically you know here's all the money and presumably all the time you could imagine mm-hmm. do you think this was him trying to find out where he was going next oh i absolutely and just that. he said you know what fuck it i got the money right now let's go record in all these different places Let's record with all these musicians and figure out what I actually like and what I want to do next. And it gives me a direction to go in. I, I believe that's very much where he was headed because he wouldn't record with many of those people ever again. Mm-hmm. But some of them he would. Like Alan, uh, Alan Toussaint and stuff, uh, he would record with again. And I think he was able to determine what he wanted to do career-wise next because he he's retired at least four different times. Yeah. Like, he's walked away and said, I'm not going to do this anymore. It's, you know, I don't have to do it anymore. But he's he's so prolific that y- you can't walk away. Well, it, it kind of goes back to me uh, to something uh, Chris was saying in our interview last episode mm-hmm. uh, from uh, The Cold Stairs. And he was saying, you're a lifer. You know, you're a lifer. You're a, a lifer musician. You become almost like an addict to the music, to making the music to, to, you know, coming up with the next new thing, where you want to go, to figuring out what you want to play and what you want to do. And I think that, you know, it, it happens at all levels of music. It happens from, you know, somebody who's first learning to play an instrument and they immediately begin like, oh, you know what? Okay, I kind of want to learn this next because that's the direction I want to go in. I want to learn punk music or I want to learn metal or I want to learn classical because that's the direction they want to go in. And I think it happens at this higher level, too, when you've got people like Elvis Costello, where you have him, you know, who's incredibly famous and very successful. And he signs this new contract with Warner Brothers. And he's like, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? Where am I going to go? And he starts to, you know, he can suss it out in a completely different way instead of just having to like. Yeah, not a normal way. Yeah, exactly. Instead of just having to, you know, listen to some other music and try to, you know, learn some new fingering on the guitar he can be like, why don't I play with all the greatest musicians that I've always wanted to play with? And, you know, 
record in all the studios and all the places that I've always wanted to record in and, you know, hire engineers and anybody that I want to make it sound in all these crazy different new ways and then see which one is best and, you know, point the rocket in that direction and shoot it off. Right. It's, it's some next level. It is. Shit. Yeah. Like it's next level. It's interesting that you would say that. So I've talked to you. This might go a bit tangenty, but stay with me. So I've talked to you about um, the Os Clavelitos, the American Samba band. Yes. Right. So the bass player is uh, my friend from high school. Yes. So uh, my wife and I went down to New Orleans a couple of years ago and met his brother. And we used, both used to be in the same band together. So his brother and him and me and a couple other guys were in, were in a band together. And we met him at a bar in New Orleans and we were just having some beers and talking. And I said, so, Dan, American Samba? <laughs> Can you explain that to me? And he said, you know how Dan is. He had mastered what he wanted to master in the last genre he was playing and needed the next challenge, whatever that happened to be. So he had played all the alternative or he had played all the jazz or he had played all the blues or whatever. And he was looking for the next mountain to climb. And that's what that became. Samba was it. Yes. I agree with you that he, that Elvis Costello probably was searching. Mm -hmm. So the attractions were over and that kind of King of America, Imperial Bedroom, Blood and Chocolate yeah. phase was winding down. Where's the next decade taking us? I'm going to try everything and then and then narrow the field a little bit. And knowing that, it actually makes me more respectful for this album. I don't know. It still doesn't, you know, it's probably not something that's going to enter my, you know, regular playlists. Right. But it makes me respect this album because it is someone saying... I'm successful. I know what I've done. I've done all the stuff that I want to do, both with, you know, a, a good band that was consistent and solo. Now, where do I go from here? And this is that album finding that he's, he's trying to, you know, I mean, he's literally throwing darts. He's like, I don't know, let's get somebody to play pipes in an Oldsmobile, you know, ping. right. And I think, I think he, he's done that multiple times because, because of where he's written the classical record. He's written yeah. the opera. He's recorded with Burt Bacharach. He's like he's done all these things and he's not really definable into the proto-pop time. Like yeah. that 77, like you don't want that window to be what your career is defined by. Yeah. That 1977 album, My Aim is True, which is fantastic. Oh, it's a great it's album. A great record. But you don't want to be that guy because there were so many that guys. Yeah. And he's gone on to do all these ridiculous things with his career. And some of them for better, some for worse. But I think that's that's the measure of a true artist is that he's not afraid to take chances that may or not may or may not be successful. Although whatever he does, Rolling Stone goes, Oh my god, it's fantastic. Yeah. Well he's he's willing to fail and say, Okay, that didn't work. Let's try something different and evolve based on those failures and that's I think, what right and that yeah i think that's that's an important lesson for any artist oh absolutely to learn which i don't think there are as many artists out there now that are willing to take that chance and fail because there's too much at stake yeah even though i'm sure the same amount was at stake for him 
he was not willing to compromise on what he believed was what he was trying to say. I don't think it's the same now across, it probably wasn't the same across the board then, but it feels like there aren't a lot of artists that take a lot, as many chances anymore. Yes. And we're, we're probably wrong. Yeah. So if you're listening out there, we're probably wrong, but because of the way the music situation is set up, it's hard to find. We're not as knowledgeable yeah. about that happening. Like you, you didn't have as many artists back then as you do now. So you couldn't really track that. You can't really track that now. I don't, I don't know who's, who's taking chances. You, you try to, you try to find it, but most likely they're not successful. They're not popular. Yeah. So how do you track it down? And, uh, Sometimes you just take a shot and, and try to find it. But. Yeah. I end up falling down a lot of rabbit holes. I think oh, that's... Who, who influenced this person? Oh, well, let's download all of their catalog and listen to it. Right. And I think oh, that's, that's more common now. Yeah. It's like you have to... Like, where where are they? You know, and I rely to some degree on my kids now mm -hmm. who maybe have a little more time to to familiarize themselves with, with music like that and be like, hey, dad, here's a, uh, here's a band you never heard of that totally outside the box taking chances i'm like okay yeah send it to me let me let me hear it <laughs> i want i want to i want to hear a band like that because i don't hear as many bands like that yeah that are you know any good <laughs> but kudos to him so that's spike yeah give it a listen see what you think and then and, tell us right and honestly what you think and honestly it's not my favorite record and it's probably gone down a notch or two from what I used to think of it when I listen to it now mm -hmm. in the context of listening now. it's It sounds dated to me. And that's a little unfortunate in my head because I, I loved it for so long that now you listen back all these years later and you're like, it doesn't do it for me anymore. And that's too bad. But that's, that's the learning, you know? Yeah. That it's not well, all going to have the same impact as it once did not only did he evolve you evolved as well correct it's a it's an interesting uh interesting take i like i like this this was uh i think this turned out nice thanks but please please do go listen to it you know give it a, it's only an hour and five minutes of your life you can listen to it on your way to and from work once if your commute is 30 minutes ish right yeah yeah according to matthew exactly and then once you have listened to it let us know what you think email us info at audiojudo.com uh facebook.com forward slash audiojudo at audiojudo on both uh, twitter and instagram yeah tell us it's garbage or yes. tell us you love it tell exactly us, like, that's the best devil's costume please do king of america's piece of shit we love hearing from you and we hear from so few of you hey but, my uh, brother uh my brother messaged us ooh. or maybe it was just me no i think it was us i think it was the page he said he said he loved the uh, rotating rosters. Uh, one, he, he was talking about uh, Journey used to perform like five or six nights a week every time they toured Detroit. Oh. They would perform like five or six shows in a row at Cobo Hall in Detroit. And he he went to a couple that he was. It. So we have another we have another listener, a family member, but he's listening. Right. It's it's another set it's of It's a person. It is a breathing human. We'll count it. He is. I hope your brother's breathing. I hope he's he, not like no. He's totally he's not breathing. in like an iron lung or something, is he? And I'm making fun of him now. Well, he does live in Michigan. I haven't checked on him recently, so oh, okay. anything. My apologies right to Matthew's brother if you're in an iron lung now, Mike. If you're in an iron lung, I'm sorry that we're making fun yeah, of you. Yeah, I apologize. 
And if not, welcome aboard. <laughs> so that's Spike. Uh, next episode, we will be talking about. Oh, and I, if Mike, if you are listening, I know you're very, you'll be mm. very excited about this. Very excited. We are talking about Boston's debut album, Boston, Boston, which is very exciting for me. And I hope I can keep that episode under three hours. Right. Uh, we'll I'm, talk about it for a long time. I'm so glad that I surprise picked that one for you, too. You did. Out of the blue. He's like, <laughs> I'd like to talk about Boston. I'm like, you got a spare couple of days? <laughs> But yes, that'll be good. That'll be uh, nice and exciting. And then after that, we'll try to move to probably a more current choice. Oh, yeah. That's 1975 or 6, 76. So we might come into this decade and, and pick something for all you youngsters. Yeah, it might be a good choice. But uh, I am excited to talk about Boston. But please continue listening uh, he gave you the website and yeah. all the social media. So please check it out. And other than that, have a great week. Yeah, talk to you next we'll time. Talk to you soon. so bad it's nfl draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football fantasypoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points fantasypoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play whether you play fantasy football daily fantasy sports or do a little bit of everything fantasy points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.